All right. I want you to imagine that you're holding a card in your hands. On one side of the card is written, um, the sentence on the other side of this card is true. We'll call that statement A. The, the sentence on the other side of this card is true. Turn the card over and the opposite side reads, the sentence on the other side of this card is false. We'll call that statement B. Trying to assign any truth to either statement A or B, however, leads to a complication. If A is true, then B must be as well. But for B to be true, A has to be false. Oppositely, if A is false, if the other side of the card is true, but if that's false, then B must be false too, which must ultimately make A true. Got that? If one side says the other side is true and the other side says the other side is false, well, that's called a paradox. And they are a lot of fun for the mind to attempt to decipher and unravel if, in fact, your mind isn't the thing that unravels first. Here's another. Imagine that a family has two children. You know they have two children and one of those children is a boy. What then is the probability that the other child is a boy? 50%, right? Because it's either a boy or a girl, after all. Uh, the chances of a baby being born a boy or a girl is essentially equal. So you'd think it's one in two. That is 50%. In a two-child family, however, there are actually four possible combinations of children. An older boy and a younger girl, so BG. Two boys, BB. An older uh, girl and a younger boy, GB. Or two girls, GG. If we already know that one child is a boy... That means we can eliminate the combination of GG, but that leaves us with three equally possible combinations of children in which at least one is a boy. There's BB, BG, and GB. This means that the probability that the other child is a boy, BB, is not one in two. It's one in three. It's one of these three scenarios. Yeah, paradox. It's fun stuff, right? Or possibly not. Possibly it's no fun whatsoever. Um, that's, that's cool too, if that's what you think. But I have one more paradox for you, and it's a popular paradox. If you enjoy science fiction books or movies, it's literally kind of the basis of the Back to the Future trilogy. And it goes like this. Imagine that a time traveler buys a copy of Hamlet from a bookstore, travels back in time to Elizabethan London, and hands the book over to Shakespeare, who then copies it out and claims it as his own work. Over the centuries that follow, Hamlet is reprinted and reproduced countless times until finally a copy of Hamlet ends up back in the original bookstore where the time traveler finds it, buys it, and takes it back to Shakespeare. The paradox is, who then wrote Hamlet? It's a paradox. Here at Clyde Christian Bible Church, we like to engage the mind first thing in the morning at the end of a busy weekend. <laughs> so, who wrote Hamlet? What is the probability the second child is a boy? Can the statement on the cards be true? These puzzles mess with our brains because they force us to consider truth as something that's pliable and manipulatable, as if objective reality were being viewed through a funhouse mirror. They take one thing you know to be true, or assume you know to be true, and beats your head against that assumed truth until something else is revealed. That's what the word paradox means, by the way. The Greek word para means beside or against and the Greek word dox means idea or teaching or belief. So a paradox is against belief. That's what it means. Because that's how they function. They fly against conventional thinking and they confront common ideas. That's what a paradox does. Well, to us who are Christians, paradoxes are nothing new. For example, our God is one, but he is also three. 
At the same time, he is both of those things. We worship a person who is entirely human, but also entirely divine. He is fully God and fully man. And that person, Jesus, is both beyond our scope of reality, but also present and real and right here, right now. And the salvation he has called us into was accomplished in the past, is being accomplished right now in the present, and will one day finally be accomplished in the future. All of those things are simultaneously true. It's a paradox. We are an already but not yet people. We are sinners who are saints. We are fallen but redeemed. We are made totally new even though we are basically still the same. Each of these is a paradox, and we are called to live in the tension between these seemingly contradictory statements, these seemingly contradictory existences. All of these things are true at the same time. There's a sort of beauty to these paradoxes, I think, if we can just accept them for what they are. I don't know how God is one and also three. That doesn't make any sense to me. But of course it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not God. It doesn't need to make sense to me. If we can just accept them, there's beauty in them. Who wrote Hamlet? In that time-traveling scenario, who, would ha- who cares? Who cares who wrote it? Just read it. It's great and beautiful. It's a, it's a masterpiece. doesn't matter who wrote it. Just read it. Just accept the paradox and live in its beauty. Well, this morning we're going to be studying a real doozy of a paradox. And truth be told, it's perhaps the most beautiful paradox of them all. It also happens to be Paul's personal manifesto, a sharply worded statement that is powerful and true no matter which side of the card you happen to be holding up. Surrounding this most beautiful paradox is an argument Paul makes that will fly against our ideas, to quote the literal definition of the word paradox. Everything Paul's about to teach flies against our ideas, in that sense is paradoxical, to us as comfortable, privileged Westerners. So, buckle up, embrace the tension, and step into the most beautiful paradox in Philippians 1, 18-26. 18b-26. It says this, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Did you hear it? The beautiful paradox? For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul builds expertly towards it and then fleshes it out powerfully afterwards. We too will build towards that paradox. But first, some things to explain to help give it some power. Last week we looked at Paul's, uh, the beginning of Paul's personal update, which is what this section of a friendly letter is. Paul's updating his friends on how he's doing. Except as he, he looked backwards at that point over the course of imprisonment and sees cause for rejoicing. Why? Because he's got his eyes on the bigger picture. Even though he's in prison and people hate him and are doing things to try to shame him, he rejoices because his eyes are on the bigger picture. Um, he's facing persecution from outside the church, Rome and antagonizing Jews. He's facing persecution from inside the church, people who just uh, preach Christ selfishly to get at Paul. But still he celebrates because his chains have caused the gospel to spread. 
He is willing to endure oppression and suffering if his ultimate goal is being accomplished. And his ultimate goal is God being glorified. So he'll endure whatever he needs to endure because his eyes are on the bigger picture, God getting the glory. And so that's Paul's personal update. And in fact, it's not very personal at all. He doesn't update them at all on his condition. He doesn't see how he's doing. He's only worried about how the gospel is doing. And so at the end of that paragraph, which is 18a, he states, the important thing is that in every way Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. That was Paul reflecting on the past. But as we move into today's paragraph, there's a shift. He states, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. His focus changes slightly from the bigger picture having been accomplished in the past to now looking forward to the bigger picture being accomplished in the future. I will continue to rejoice. Here is what's going to happen. Paul finally gets personal with the Philippians in this passage. First, he updates them on the gospel, doesn't talk about himself, but now he begins to talk about himself. We're given an in-depth vision of Paul's inner heart and his deepest beliefs about his purpose and his motivations. And fittingly, for a person who faces trial and execution, he's ruminating on life and death. So that's what he's looking ahead to. There's three portions to this passage. In the first, which is uh, verses 18 to to 20, sorry, 18 and 19, Paul offers the reason for his continued rejoicing. Namely, all that has happened to him will result in his deliverance with their help, as we'll see. So that's the first thing. He anticipates deliverance. Secondly, verses 20 to uh, 25, I think, the mention of life and death in verse 20 causes him to ruminate on these contrasting options. So in the first section, he mentions life and death. The next section, that's all he thinks about. That's all he talks about is life and death. And finally, in the third portion, having settled on life as the choice, well, choice is the wrong word, but deciding it will be life for him, he outlines how this would be a benefit for his Philippian friends. But I need to issue a warning. There is danger here. It would be incredibly easy to misinterpret each portion of Paul's paradoxical argument. And so we'll look at the danger as we move along in the, in the passage. Let's look at the first portion, where Paul rejoices at, rejoices at his coming deliverance. It's interesting how much stake he gives the Philippians in this. He mentions that their prayers are are central to him being delivered, which is, I think, instructive to all of us, that prayer is powerful and purposeful, and that in our prayers for other people, we can affect change. That's what Paul believes. Um, He makes it a community thing. It's not just him going solo. But he gives the Philippians a lot of stake in his deliverance. Their, Their prayers are coupled with the presence of the Holy Spirit to bring about this deliverance. By the way, here's the danger. If you are reading from the older version of the NIV, as I did, my this Bible is the older version. If you're looking in the backs of the pews, the black versions are the older versions. Um, in the older version of the NIV, they translated verse 19 poorly. And I don't say that like a snob is in, I know better than the NIV. The NIV knows better because in the newer versions, they updated it and they changed it. Through their translation of help given by the Holy Spirit in the original NIV, they made it sound as though the Holy Spirit would show up and give Paul something that would fill him with confidence and salvation. When it says help given by the Holy Spirit, it sounds like the Holy Spirit will show up and give him something he needs. Confidence or courage or whatever. But the grammar of the Greek is pretty clear. And they fixed it for their updated translations. And so the newer NIV, so here's the old one, the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And in the newer version, it says, I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. 
It's a very subtle difference, but they fixed it and they made it better. The difference is the Spirit doesn't give a gift that leads to confidence as the first one makes it sound, the older one makes it sound. Instead, they fixed it for the newer one to show that the Spirit himself is the gift that leads to confidence. The Spirit is the gift that provides assurance of salvation. He doesn't need anything from the Spirit. He needs the Spirit. That's all he needs. The Holy Spirit is sufficient. It's just a reminder of the first paradox of the morning. The first paradox is this. We already have everything we need. There's just a few things we need to go with it. And that's totally true. We already have the presence of the Holy Spirit living within us, empowering us, leading us, guiding us. The Holy Spirit is sufficient for all of our needs. That is absolutely true. But Paul still acknowledges his reliance on the faithful prayers of the Philippians. And he still needs to be made aware of the Spirit's presence. So the Spirit's there. We still need to be in communion with the Spirit. We still need to be aware of how the Spirit's moving. Um, As always in our faith journeys, I think, God initiates and does the lion's share of the work. He has accomplished everything we need already. But we require two things. First of all, a community of fellow believers to support us is super important for our salvation process, our sanctification process. We need people to sharpen us. Even if we don't always like all those people, we still need those people. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is a personal responsibility to engage with the God who has given us all we need. As all good paradoxes do, this paradox runs against our common belief about faith. Remember paradox against belief? This idea runs against our common belief. The Western church is super individualistic. That faith is just for you. It's my personal relationship with God and that's it. But that's not it. It never has been it. For Paul, for him to say that faith is just a personal thing is an abomination to him. And you see that here. Faith is not just a personal thing. And that's why this is a paradox. It's not just personal. Paul would never have us understand faith as individual. Our faith is personal, to be sure. There is a one-on-one with God aspect to our faith. But as personal as it is, it's also communal. It is a community thing. Faith by itself shrivels up and dies. There are, I mean, absolutely isolated incidents where God has saved one person, a whole community. That happens because he works miracles. But that is not generally how it ever happens. We think we can go it alone, but we can't. I need you guys. And you need each other. Faith is not just personal. And let's not forget, it's also divine. So it's not me alone. It is me in reliance on the Spirit of Jesus, in partnership with each of you, my brothers and sisters. It is all mine. My faith is all mine, but it is not mine at all. It, it's not mine at all. And that I don't think the Western Church sees it like that. I think we're very much, I'm saved, I'm in, that's it. There's so much more to the picture than just that, and Paul makes that clear here. We need each other, and we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. Once we have the Holy Spirit, we're not done. We still need to commune with him. We need to be in conversation with him. So I I love that idea. But here we need to examine what exactly Paul means by deliverance. Verse, what is it, 18 or 19 says, um, I know that through my pr- your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. What does it mean by deliverance? Well, considering the context that Paul's writing in, imprisonment, possible execution impending, um, and considering his use of words like what has happened to me and courage and shame and life or death, not to mention deliverance, 
seems pretty clear that he's anticipating deliverance from prison, doesn't it? That would make sense. And that's how I understood it when I first read this passage, that he's speaking of deliverance from house arrest so he could be free to go be with the Philippians again. There's a bit of that. I think that's why he, that's why they translated deliverance to keep a bit of that ambiguity because he is looking forward to deliverance from house arrest. He makes that clear at the back end of this passage. But there's a whole lot more going on than just that. He's not just looking to rejoice because he will be freed from house arrest. Once again, the truth flies in the face of our expectations. So the word translated deliverance in the Greek is, is the Greek word soterian, soterian. And in almost every other occurrence of this word, so, soter or soteria, any root of this, in almost every other instance, the Bible translates it salvation. And when Paul uses it, he always has an eschatological sense, meaning looking forward to the end times, to the judgment to come. When he says soterian, he doesn't use it as in saved from prison or saved from circumstance. He's saying big picture salvation, salvation from my sinful fallen self, salvation into the kingdom of God. When he uses that word, that's what he means. What's more, in that phrase, what has happened to me will turn out for my soterian, Paul is actually quoting Job 13. Here's Job 13. It says, indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. This is Job speaking. His friends are saying, hey, you're not a righteous guy. If you were a righteous guy, God wouldn't punish you. And Job says, no, no, that's not the case at all. I am a righteous guy. God knows I'm a righteous guy. And he says, indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no godless person would dare come before God, come before him. And then two verses later, now that I have prepared my case, I know that I will be vindicated. There's that word vindicated, yellow. We like that word, Yella and I, um, vindicated. So in this passage, in, in verse 19, he is quoting this from Job. He's also hinting towards a few of the Psalms. The Psalm that we read today speak, spoke of vindication. It used that word vindication. That was Psalm 24. Psalm 34 and 35, they speak of vindication for the poor man, that the poor man will be vindicated by God, that his suffering will lead to something. And what is the vindication for Job, who, like Paul, is suffering unjustly, who, like Paul, is enduring his own people claiming he's unrighteous? What is the vindication for Job? Well, vindication for Job is standing before God and pleading his case, that God will accept his case and will prove him innocent. That's that's what would make Job feel vindicated. And that's what Paul is confidently looking forward to as well. That through the Philippians' prayers and the presence of the Spirit, that Paul is rejoicing because he knows he too will one day stand before the Lord on that final day. And he too will know no shame because he will have given his life over to making Jesus glorified. Or as he says in verse 20, I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. So Paul's not looking to be vindicated in the eyes of Caesar or the eyes of his Roman guards, or the eyes of Rome, or the eyes of the Roman church, or even in the eyes of the Philippians. He's not looking to be vindicated by any of them. Paul, as always, has the bigger picture in mind. He's looking forward to and rejoicing because his suffering will make him righteous in the eyes of Jesus. He's looking forward to vindication in the eyes of his master. The deliverance that he eagerly expects, well, on the surface level, is deliverance from prison, as we'll see the back end of the passage. But that word soterian challenges us to look beyond mere circumstance and look instead to our final deliverance, our final salvation, as we stand before the ultimate judge, not some pathetic worldly Roman. Even if that judge is Caesar himself, he's just a Roman 
He's just some human judge. Paul's not anticipating needing courage in front of him. He wants to make the, the gospel proclaimed boldly before Rome, that's for sure. But he's not worried about being vindicated by Rome. It's not deliverance from prison he's anticipating with confidence. It's not shame before some Roman official he hopes against. It's not courage in the face of execution charges he's look, he's he's asking for prayers for. Those things are temporary and trifling. Paul's got his eyes on the bigger picture. Paul's victory is not dependent on acquittal at some trial, even if his life is at stake. Instead, he will not be ashamed because Christ will be exalted in him, whether by life or death. As it says in verse 18, his eyes are on the bigger picture. His singular hope is that Christ and the gospel will be vindicated through his life or death. Not that he will be vindicated, but that Christ will be vindicated. And that this will bring him soterian, salvation and deliverance. That's his hope. That's what he's asking for prayer for. Not that he will feel no shame himself, that not that his body will be delivered, but that through his body, whether delivered to freedom or delivered to execution, through his body, the gospel will be made vindicated, that Christ will be vindicated. And that mention of life or death launches Paul into something incredibly rare in this letter. In many ways, this passage we, we just read, especially verses 20 to 25, in many ways, it's the closest thing that we have in the book of Philippians to a soliloquy. You remember that word soliloquy from your days in high school English? Soliloquy. What does that fancy word mean anyway? What is a soliloquy? It's easy to forget. It's not a word we use often. A soliloquy is when a character in a play steps off by himself and delivers some poetic and reflective monologue. That's all it is. He's talking to himself in some beautiful way. That's all a soliloquy is. Um, of course, you probably first heard that word when you studied who? Shakespeare. That's right. That's where I first heard the word soliloquy when in English 10 we read, I think it was Othello. That's where I first heard the word soliloquy. The most famous soliloquies of all time are found in Shakespeare. So what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east and Juliet the sun. Or what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Those are pretty famous soliloquies. One is Romeo pining for Juliet. The other is Juliet begrudging the fact that because she's a Montague or she's a Capulet and he's a Montague, they can't be together. I forget who's who, but soliloquy. Yeah, so Dennis is wondering if the word soliloquy has to mean it has like literal word roots to the word soul. And I don't know. That would be awesome if it did. That's something to to look into. Um I'm not sure. But that's a good way to see it, that a soliloquy is speaking from the soul. That's what Shakespeare does beautifully. You're right. And that's that's kind of what Paul does beautifully here too. Yes. Ecclesiastes is one long, super depressing soliloquy. That's right. Um, but the most famous Shakespearean soliloquy is found in the play mentioned in our opening uh, when we were looking at paradoxes. What was the, the paradox... Hamlet, that we talked about Hamlet. Who wrote Hamlet? Well, Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, but the most famous soliloquy of all time is, is Hamlet's classic to be or not to be speech. Surely you're at least passingly familiar with it. Picture me holding the skull of poor Yorick as I recite the opening few lines. To be or not to be, that is the question. 
Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. To die, to sleep. To sleep, perchance to dream. Ay, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come, when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, it must give us pause. There is the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? And blah, and blah, 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 and on and on and on. There is a lot in there that is super famous. I, there's the rub. Uh, to be or not to be. Uh, to, to sleep perchance to dream. Those are pretty famous. And it all comes from here. Here we have the possibly suicidal Hamlet considering the options. Live and be tormented by forces beyond his control, or take control in the one way he can and embrace death in the form of suicide. That's what that speech is about. That's what that soliloquy is about. Ruminating on, should I stay alive or should I succumb to death? Basically, the most famous soliloquy of all time is speaking from a forlorn place of hopelessness and says, to live is pain and to die is relief. That's what Hamlet's saying. Compare that to the one soliloquy the Apostle Paul offers himself in this letter to his friends in Philippi. Instead of Hamlet's empty and depressing, life is pain and death is relief, we have the hopeful and meaningful to live is Christ and to die is gain. Life or death, Hamlet sees dread in both options. Paul, on the other hand, sees glory and purpose in both options. If we're honest, if we're brutally honest with ourselves, we probably lean more towards Hamlet's way of thinking most of the time rather than Paul's. Why? Because we are North Americans. In our idolatrous pursuit of self and our worship of individual pleasure, power, profit, because we're North Americans and that's the the worldview we succumb to more often than not, then we are programmed to fear death. If we're just looking out for number one, the biggest affront to looking out for number one is death, who looks out for no one comes for all of us. We behave um, as though death will never happen to us, and then we treat it like an embarrassment or a shameful thing when it does arrive. Doesn't our culture do that? We flee from death, and then when death comes, we treat it like it's something to be ashamed of, or an embarrassment, or an inconvenience. We treat death like a crazy ant in the family. We know it's out there somewhere, and we try to ignore it as much as we can, But it's coming to visit eventually, and we're embarrassed when she does. And so we make excuses. I'm too busy for you to visit right now. We say that to death. Or, my house isn't in order for you to come. We say that to death. Not ready. Or, why don't you visit my neighbor first instead of me? And still, eventually, that crazy ant comes and knocks on your door. So how will we view that ant of ours? Will we view death like Hamlet? in despair? Or will we view it like Paul in victory? To live is Christ and to die is gain. What a perfect, powerful little paradox. And it's made even more impactful in the original Greek. In the Greek, to live is Christos, to die is Kurdos. Christos and Kurdos. Christos means obviously Christ. Kurdos is the Greek word for gain. Christos, Kurdos. It's this beautiful, tight, compact little paradox. Life and death, Christos, Kurdos. To live is Christ to submit to him, to take up our cross like him and suffer with him and follow him, to commune with him, to be guided and inspired and transformed by him, 
to proclaim him and serve him, to turn everything we have over to him. That is our glorious life. But to die, well, to die is even greater. It's even better in Paul's eyes. Paul argues that only in death will we finally, perfectly, ultimately be with him, which is the end goal of all things, which is the purpose of all life to be with our God. And we can only finally be with God in death. So as great and challenging, but as great as this life in Christ is, death is even better. We get to see him in his full radiant glory. We become fully redeemed and fully soterian, fully delivered. To our Western death-phobic ears, and our culture is very death-phobic, we're even sick-phobic. We're like any kind of injury or inconvenience in any way, we are phobic of that. But to our Western death-phobic ears, Paul's paradox makes absolutely no sense. To Paul, to live means to die to self and to submit to Christ. To die, on the other hand, is to be made fully and eternally alive in Jesus. We would never consider Hamlet's soliloquy a paradox. We might find it depressing, but we don't consider what Hamlet has to say a paradox, that to live is is depressing and to die is relief. We, we don't consider that a paradox. But that's exactly what we think of Paul's soliloquy. For Paul, continuing to live in this fleshly fallen world is an ongoing sacrifice we make for the sake of the gospel. How about that? Is that how we see life and death? That life is the sacrifice we make? And that death is the reward? Death is preferable. It's a reward. It's not that Paul is afraid or indifferent towards that crazy old aunt named death. Rather, he welcomes and embraces her. He, he looks forward to visiting with her. He looks forward to it like a treat. So we read Hamlet's soliloquy, and part of that makes sense to us. We read Paul's soliloquy as Western, comfortable, privileged North Americans, and we say, what is he talking about? To live is Christ and to die is gain. No, to live is me. To die is inconvenience. That's how we tend to think. It's not that Paul possesses this otherworldly, ultra-naive perspective. He's not superhuman. He's merely a citizen of two worlds, which is a paradox in and of itself. And his, his ultimate, prece- what takes precedent and shapes everything isn't his earthly citizenship. It's his heavenly citizenship. That shapes everything about his earthly citizenship. That's what takes precedent. And it's, moreover, it's not that Paul is suicidal like Hamlet. It's not that he has a death wish. It's not that he longs to be free of the troubles of human existence and death is the only way to get free of it. It's not what he's saying. The gain is not just freedom from pain. That's not what he's talking about. Instead, it's an acknowledgement that in Jesus, life and death have the same purpose, glorifying him. Though this life is uncertain, our future is rock solid as long as we commit to the bigger picture. If that's true, if living is Christ and dying is gain, and I believe it is, even though I don't always live like that's true, if to live is Christ and to die is gain, then that is the most beautiful paradox of all. Two quick things to clear up before we move on. One, Paul's making a sound as though he gets to choose his destination. He doesn't. That's not the case. He knows that his imprisonment could end in death, and as he's made clear, what he's doing is putting his fate in the hands of God. He's not saying, hey, I could choose to be free from prison and live and visit you Philippians again, or I could choose to be die or be executed and die and be with Christ. It's up to me. 
He's obviously not saying that. It's not up to him at all. He's very clear that it's in the hands of the Romans. And so he doesn't speak of choosing as though the choice is his to make. He's just musing on what choice he would make and what choice he is confident God will make for him. So just to be clear about that. Second of all, we need to clarify what sounds like outrageous egotism on the part of Paul. Let me just reread a part of this portion. Um, It is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and join the faith, so that through my being with you, again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Me, 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 me. It sounds like he's very egotistical here. So we need to clarify that. As we move from the second portion into the third Paul seems to settle on this idea that God will not grant him death, even though death is better by far, paradoxically. But he settles on the idea that God will not grant him death. His reasoning for staying alive is that it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Um, Now, it would be fair to hear that and think, wow, Paul, you really think highly of yourself. God will only keep you alive because the Philippians, who, by the way, are your healthiest church, need you around before they can boast in Christ. Are you sure, Paul? Can't they boast in Christ that they are healthy and thriving even though you are thousands of kilometers away locked in prison somewhere and they're still doing great? Can't they progress in the faith and grow in joy without you, Mr. Super Apostle? What's with the ego trip, Polly boy? Well, there's a good reason for it, actually. Paul offers this soliloquy to the Philippians to teach them two things. First of all, the first is obvious, and it's the same lesson we need to learn from this beautiful paradox, that both our lives and our deaths are filled with purpose and goodness as long as both our lives and deaths are filled with Jesus. That's the first reason why he writes this, that it's okay to embrace death because death is better. But the second lesson explains what looks like raving egotism by Paul. Very soon, probably two sermons from now, we will read chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and we will hear Paul say explicitly, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And Paul is actually modeling that exact lesson for them here in a very weird way to our ears. According to the beautiful paradox, death is better than life. Selfishly, Paul wishes to depart from this life like a boat pulling away from the pier towards some glorious, beautiful land where he gets to meet his master. Paradoxically, it is selfish to wish death. That... It's selfless to stay alive. For Paul, the selfish desire is to die and be with Jesus. So Paul is showing an enormous amount of love and interest in his friends in Philippi merely by saying he will remain with them. And by that, I mean remain alive at all and go to them. That's how he demonstrates valuing others more than himself in this particular context. If it was up to him, he'd be dead and gone with Jesus. But others need him. And so he's showing that he values others more than himself by saying, okay, I'll stay alive and be with you. Though he longs to depart and be with Jesus, he's confident that there is more work to be done among them for the gospel. So he bites the bullet and anticipates not having his head chopped off. That's his sacrifice. Oh, the sacrifices we make for those we love, staying alive so they can be filled with joy and courage rather than you dying a horrible, unjust death. It's unfair, really, right, Paul? But again, this passage highlights the most beautiful paradox we can offer the world around us, and that is this, to live as Christ, not self, and to die as gain, not emptiness and shame. To live as Christ and to die as gain. That is a beautiful truth that the world completely sees the opposite way. 
It's beautiful, but it's extremely challenging. I call it a paradox precisely because it runs so contrary to how our culture thinks about life and death. We are wired to prioritize and pursue those things that make us happy. But here comes Paul in the midst of tremendously unhappy suffering and instead offers reasons to rejoice that go beyond happiness, even in death. I want to finish by reading um, some words from the commentaries that I study. One of the commentaries I read had these intensely convicting words. I want to read them to you as I begin to conclude. By the way, begin to conclude, that's a paradox. Gordon Fee writes, Too often for us, it's for me to live as Christ, plus work and leisure, accumulating wealth, relationships, etc. To live as Christ, partly, but it's also all these other things. And if the truth were known, all too often the extras have become our primary passion, and we drop the Christ part altogether. So for me, to live is work. And Christ isn't even in the picture. For me, to live is pleasure, to live is wealth and power, etc., But both our progress and our joy regarding the gospel are altogether contingent on whether or not Christ is our primary singular passion. We expect eventually to depart and be with Christ when we're good and ready, by the way, thank you very much, then I'm ready to depart. But for Paul, this was a yearning. For us, it is far too often an inconvenience. The point to make is that such an orientation, that to live as Christ and to die as gain, gives us both focus and perspective in a world gone mad. I read that and it It was like a punch in the face. Um, The other author that I read, Frank Thielman, he adds these even harder-hitting thoughts that it's tempting for the believer to live as though there were nothing beyond the grave. This can only cause us to clutch our material possessions more tightly for the security they can give us and keep us from risking ourselves in the service to God. Um, Death is the worst possible event for those who believe they have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a pretty killer line. And our way of coping with it seems to be to deny death's existence. Paul, however, faced death with the same firm resolve that marked his approach to life, for both death and life to him meant service to Christ, and service to Christ was his primary goal. Life and death, Christos and Kurdos. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is to die to self. To live is to die. And to die is to live with Jesus Christ eternally for all time to be made fully alive. There's the paradox. To live is death, and to die is life. They're reminiscent of paradoxes that Jesus offered twice in both Matthew and Luke, where he says, for whomever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. That paradox and the beautiful paradox offered by Paul only make sense if life and death are viewed through the lens of the bigger picture, having the bigger picture in mind bringing glory to Jesus in all we do and building our hope and our joy and our faith on the three-in-one God who is fully human and fully man and who has departed from this earth but whose presence remains among us. Goodness, that is a lot of paradox. Life and death only make sense as both potentially great if the bigger picture is what we have our eyes on. Never mind Hamlet or boy-girl probabilities or statements of truth and falsehood on the backs of cards. This life in Christ is a life full of paradoxes, beautiful paradoxes. That's what life in Christ is. And death is the door to our most meaningful rewards. One glorious day, all these paradoxes will make sense. That is our hope and our faith and our joy. Until then, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We're called to live in the tension of that beautiful paradox. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that in him, 
in you, life has purpose and death has purpose as well. Thank you that in you, life is death to ourselves. Life is living for you. And thank you that in death, we are made fully alive in you, alive for all time, for eternity. And I thank you for the quality of that life today. Thank you that we get to share that life with our brothers and sisters that we you give us each other to rely on. Thank you that you share your spirit with us, Jesus, to rely on as, as well. But I pray we would take this beautiful, hopeful message of living for you and dying being our gain. We would take it to our hurting world around us and, and draw others into the glory that can be found in that beautiful paradox. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. To die, to sleep. To sleep, perchance to dream. Ay, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil and blah, and blah, 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 and on and on and on. I know better than the NIV.